Well, this morning I'll be preaching in a sermon series entitled Men, Women, and Marriage. And I've been eager to do this for quite some time. Perhaps the chief reason that I'm eager to do this is because I love you, I love your children, and I want the greatest possible joy for your households. And as I spend time with brothers and sisters at this church and seek to shepherd and love and care for as a brother and as a pastor, it continues to be evident that one of the greatest joy-robbing parts of our lives is when our households are not ordered the way that the Lord commands. And so in an effort to restore that joy, I'm eager to open the Word of God and walk through texts that specifically tell us what our homes should look like, what our marriages should look like, what our parenting and the relationship with our children should look like. In the past at this church, in the recent past, we've covered sermon series that seek to to help from the Word of God show you how Christians should relate to the sphere of civil government. Additionally, we've done a couple of sermon series in the last couple of years on how Christians ought to relate to one another as Christians in the church, in the sphere of the church. In this series, I will endeavor to help you understand from God's Word how Christians ought to relate with one another in the sphere of the household. It is my concern that today the Christian household is under attack perhaps in a way that is unprecedented in recent generations. And it seems, at least to me, and I know many others who would agree with this, that Christians in our day have fallen prey to some of these attacks, have believed some of the lies that the enemy has sold us. In fact, some of these lies, I think it can be said, have been shouted so loudly for so long that we have actually started believing many of these deceptions. And I think that there are a few areas of our thinking as believers today that are more convoluted, more misunderstood, more misapplied than the gender roles that the Lord has given us. And so correction to these things has to begin in the household sphere. It has to start there. Last week, Pastor Luke showed us that we are all image bearers of God. He kicked the sermon series off in Genesis chapter 1, giving us the first step, the first groundwork kind of laid. We are all image bearers of God. And as image bearers, we have been equipped by God with both the capacity and desire to do something meaningful with our lives. As believers, we know this, but just as humans... We are not robots. We are not automatons. We don't live and relate to this world like moss on a rock. We have far more meaning and far more value. We crave to do things with purpose. And this is actually true even of people who don't believe in or don't love, don't honor God. So what if you don't believe that there's anything meaningful in life at all? What about atheists today? What about those who would boldly say that they do not trust in, love, and honor God, 
those who refuse to take orders from God. What do they do with all this pent-up image-bearer energy, this cultivating purpose that God has given to them? They invent causes. They find something to aim that at. They have to ascribe meaning or value to something, even though, and this is the catch, even though their worldview, when applied consistently, does not provide the basis for value at all. Inconsistently, they come up with causes. Save the whales. Protect the rainforests. Recycle. Reduce your carbon footprint. And those are the best of the ideas. Because there are far worse ideas that have been proposed and today are actively pursued by those who are far from God. And they will pursue such causes with religious fervor. You've seen the fury with which people riot and march, haven't you? You've observed how some people have engaged in maelstroms on social media, attacking anyone who dares to challenge their worldly view. Have you ever wondered where they get all that energy from, where they get all that passion from? How did... The streets get filled with people who are shouting these same obvious deceptions. Where, where, where do they come from? Out of the woodwork, it seems. Where do those who don't love and honor God get all that passion? The answer is from God. They were made to pursue meaning and purpose and do something with significance. And so, even if inconsistently, their very human image-bearer nature wars against their own ideology. The world has no purpose, and we will fight for that purpose. And so it's what they do. And it's why their fighting is full of such folly. It's why their, fo- their fighting looks more like burning down than building up, because that's what they're doing. They seek to burn down the very world that God commanded to build up. And what exactly is it that they are burning down today? What exactly is it that they seek to attack today? What are they warning against? Well, I believe that in this era, it is plain to see that the family unit, the household, as ordered by God, is under extraordinary attack. Our enemy hates God's plan for the household. And so the solution from us is not to merely meet them in the streets, or to fire back on social media with greater fury, or to sling mud harder than they do, we are not called to burn down what is theirs before they burn down what is ours. Our mission is to make families that are resilient to such attacks. Simply put, the need of the hour is indestructible households, ineradicable family units. And in some small measure, I hope to point to certain truths from the Bible in this series that will provide foundations needed for your households to be indestructible. And that is a weighty ask of the Lord as we start this thing. I think that today we're going to just barely wade in up to our ankles on the next step. Luke established for us last week 
uh, this foundation of we are all image bearers of God. Okay, today we're going to take that one more step towards marriage and family and all that's supposed to build, and that's going to be looking in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 about God's design for mankind, what it is that we are supposed to be doing as image bearers of God. Let's orient ourselves to the task today. I'm going to cover five verses, Genesis 2, 5 through 9. That's all we're covering. If you have your Bibles, I think it'd be helpful for you to have it open and follow along. It's right at the beginning of the Bible, chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, and I'm going to draw out three points. That's the plan, three points to wrap up with today after we get through that text. Uh, Let me read that text, pray, and then we'll go back through a little bit at a time. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need your help in understanding what you wanted out of our homes, our households, our families. And we need for you to help push back, overcome, overwhelm in our minds any lies that are in, either from our own flesh, from the enemy's direct, specific, clear deceptions, and Lord, even the lies from the world in which we swim all day long. Please help us, Lord. Rescue us out of those things. Help us to see clearly. Father, I I am very confident throughout the course of this study together that there will be things pressed upon in our hearts uh, lies that will be exposed that may even be painful for our heart. I know, I, know, I know hard for me to acknowledge, Lord, as I've been studying through this. But Father, please, in your kindness, out of a desire for, for good and for our good benefit and joy, please show us from your word what we should see in our households. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Going back to the beginning of our text today, follow me along with verses 5 and 6. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Pause there. We are seeing here the conditions of the world prior to the creation of man. Real quick, Uh, We've already read, if you had followed along in Genesis chapter 1, we saw seven days of creation laid out. Six in which God worked and was actively creating, a seventh in which he rested. That brings us into chapter 2, where the text will zero in on and unpack that sixth day, that most important day of creation. And so it's kind of a retelling of what we already saw in a short segment back in chapter 1. And so we're seeing the conditions of the world just before mankind is made. That sounds like what's being described right here. Lots can be said about this. I did a lot of work that didn't make it into the sermon. If you have questions about these two verses, come, come talk to me about this. But this is what was around prior to man being made. And verse 7 tells us about the man being made. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. What was man made from? Dust. 
dirt. You see, there's nothing special about the ingredients that God uses to make us here. In fact, even the breath of life we are given from God is said to be given to the animals. There's nothing significant about those atoms, the molecules, the actual physical matter that makes up the human being. And with this, even atheists agree. In fact, they love to agree with this. Man is, man is basically a pile of dust. So therefore, he should be equated in equal value with a pile of dust. Right? If that's all he is. They use this as proof that man has no intrinsic value. But man's value is not in what he is made of, but in what he is made for. To bear the image of God in creation. To represent God on this earth. Pastor Luke unpacked this very thoroughly last week. I would entreat that you check that out if you haven't already, about how we are image bearers of God. Male and female are both made in the image and the likeness of God of God. That's what gives us value. And so what did God do with this newly formed living man? He made him a special home. Look at verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does God do? He builds a special habitat for the man. And where does he build this special habitat? In Eden. Technically, it's not properly the Garden of Eden as much as it's the Garden in Eden, really. It's, it's the garden that was, that was planted in the land that is known as Eden. And the word Eden in Hebrew simply means delight or pleasure. It was a delightful place, a place of pleasure and goodness. The garden was special. It was different than the rest of the world. It was distinctive. It was made unique for mankind. And it was filled with every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. See that? Not, on, not only stuff that's good for eating, but even that that is pleasant to look at. God causes plants to grow and flourish in Adam's new home. And, and in this garden, God specifically plants two unique and special trees that did not exist outside of the garden. We know from the story that there isn't a tree of life outside the garden. It's only inside the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is in there. That's the problem. That's why they get kicked out after they sin. So that they no longer have access to those trees. And this will become more significant later in the story, as we'll see in future weeks. But I want you to notice before we move on, God gave the very best of creation to man. The very best of creation he gave to man. He did not put man in the wilderness to battle against beasts and thorns, driving sands and in a blazing sun. And while admittedly not much is said about the land outside the garden, even without death, we can see that what God graciously gives to man is nothing short of paradise. If you ever struggle with thinking that God doesn't care if you are miserable or happy, just open his word. Not only are we continually told to rejoice, not only are we continually given things that make us happy and filled with joy, not only are we granted those special privileges, 
Not only is the source of every good and perfect gift God alone, but He created us for paradise, for the very best of His creation. No part of this planet was more suitable for the joy of mankind than that specially made garden. Adam would not have been placed in the garden and looked outside and been like, oh, Lord, why, why couldn't we have had that? He was in a paradise. There are three points that I think we can draw from just these five verses. Things that applied first to Adam, by extension Eve, and by further extension us. Primarily here to Adam, then to his wife, and by extension to all mankind. Follow me with these points, if you will. First point, mankind was made for work. Mankind was made for work. You guys can put that slide up there too so we can follow. Mankind was made for this. We were created to work the garden. Not only had it already been said in the part that we covered, why was there not yet a garden? Well, because God had not made man and rain and the conditions that he wanted for the flourishing of a garden. But it says it even clearer in Genesis 2.15, a few verses after our text today. You can look down there if you want with me. Look at Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. What he did with the man in a sinless state, he put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Mankind was created to work the garden. The chapter 1 language was to subdue the earth. And now, so far in this chapter, this is just man. Uh, Eve has not yet been mentioned. Woman has not yet been mentioned. But by the end of the chapter, it is clear that God intended for woman to join the man in his labors. That's the point. The point is, by the time we get to the end of this chapter, we will see man and woman were made to join forces and work. And this work is good and glorious. It is part of life even in a sinless paradise. You know, the word for work here is used on other occasions in the Old Testament for worship. Because our obedient labors are worship. That's the work that we do for the Lord. That's the service we do out of love for God. God plants the garden in a special way. And he does this after man was made. Did you notice that? He had already, this was already after day three, he'd already created all the plants. He just hadn't, he hadn't brought about the natural proliferation of those plants. I mean, he just spoke and they were existed. Now he's actually seeing those planted and growing and flourishing and multiplying. And this takes place after the man was made. Why is this significant? That God waits for the creation of man before he makes Eden. Because God demonstrates for Adam what Adam is supposed to do. He gives them an example. Adam, this is what you're going to do. Make this garden grow. Plant. Make it flourish. Water. And do all that is necessary for the good of the garden. It's like when you teach your kid to to mow the lawn. You you, You don't just send them out there and be like, well, I'm sure you'll figure it out. 
No, you, you go out there with your kid, and you, you, you put, put the lawnmower there, you show them where the gas goes, you, where the little prime button is, and, and then you show them how to pull the, 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 the rope so that it gets the engine started, and how to push, and how to keep your toes out from underneath. You teach, you show, and then you pass it off. And I think in a similar way, we see a bit of that here. This is why the garden was created after the man. Man was present. He was there for the creating of the garden. Do this work. God worked in this creation. In fact, this is significant in the way that Moses retells this story in Genesis 1 because he tells us that God worked. He labored for six days. And what did he do on the seventh day? He rested from his work. That was the point. And no, our divine God doesn't sweat like we do in exerting effort. And yet, he rested on the seventh day. That means he he worked for the other six Jesus says in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The father had work for the son to go accomplish. You and I were made to work the ground. We were made to cultivate the garden that God has given us to ensure that it grows and it flourishes. To say it this way, creation was, by God's design, an unfinished work. He didn't create the garden in a nice fluffy couch and be like, just chill. He created labor and work for him to do. Hey, uh, this cultivating is not done. And if you don't touch anything, the garden won't last like this. There's going to be a lot to be accomplished. Get ready. And that's what he made Adam for, to work. Why would he have to work anything if it was completed? In fact, this has always been God's plan. He hands the shovel to the man and tells him to get to work. And this is the way that it is throughout the Old Testament, even after the fall, continuing through our day, and it continues all the way into eternity. Remember when God rescued the people out of Egypt and he brought them into the land and they found a shining temple on a nation? No. They had barrenness. And he said, listen, I want you to throw in your money. I want you to throw in your skills. I want you to go get the stuff that you need and build me a tabernacle. You do the work. I provided the peace. I've got you, but you do the work, he said to them. The generation later, Joshua's generation, when they entered into the promised land, he didn't say, just walk in. There's no enemies there. It's just waiting. No, there's lots of work, blood, sweat, and tears for you in this land. You must work. Here's your promised land. Now work for it. The following generation, do you remember what they said to Joshua's following generation? The children after, they left some of the enemies in the land. Do you know why they left enemies in the land? So that the next generation would learn war. And that they would work to take this great expanse that had been gifted to them by God, grown into by their predecessors, and that they would expand that even further. In fact, in the Great Commission, in the New Covenant, The work of spreading the gospel is given to us. Go make something. Disciples. There's labor involved. This is why whatever we do, we should work at it as working for the Lord and not for men. With all your hearts. Our day is one of work. In fact, it's, it's my view that in the end, I think this is fully consistent with the Bible, in the end, in heaven, in eternity, we will work for forever. 
doing wonderful work, continuing the task of working the garden, cultivating the whole of the earth. And it will be rest in the presence of God because the earth will no longer resist our cultivating. We will no longer eat by the sweat of our brow, but will enjoy the benefits of always productive labor. I have, I have no theological problem whatsoever to say that we might have dirt under our fingernails in heaven from cultivating the earth. It's glorious and good and sinless and wonderful. And we will enjoy fruit for forever. But you and I both know we're not there yet. Because of the fall, because of Adam's sin, us in Adam and our persistence in such sin, Fruit will be hard-earned. It will require that sweat, blood, and tears. Even the fruit that we enjoy will be hard-earned. And I don't mean just the stuff that you eat. I don't just mean the labor that earns you a wage that you go and buy at the marketplace, things to bring home. No, I mean even more than that. I mean your children will be hard to raise. Your marriage will take work, effort for it to be good. The earth doesn't cultivate itself. You're going to have to go do that. And it's going to be challenging. It's going to be hard. Expect it. Expect your work to be arduous. And there will be seasons where your work will be so difficult. You'll work your butt off in critical areas of your life. And just like the farmer who labors during a drought, your reward will be meager at best man, I'm working as hard as I can and I'm barely squeezing water from a rock here. This has been challenging. Yes, that will happen. Expect to go to bed tired because the world, the earth still resists your cultivating. In this world, you and I will be continually tempted to be unproductive, unfruitful. We will be allured by things that produce nothing of genuine value. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. A disproportionate amount of our time poured into entertainment and TV and social media and news, which is just entertainment. Please tell me you know that. There's so many things that seek to rob our energies, our affection, our attention from the right and good and honoring work the Lord has laid before us. And you know it, don't you? You know it. Have you ever, have you ever uh, gorged yourself on something that's not good for you and later gone, that was a bad idea? I, I don't know a young man who has stayed up all night long playing video games and woke up, or didn't wake up, started to go to work the next day and said, I'm glad I did that. Because you know you're made for something better than dumb video games that produce nothing good for you in eternity. And you will listen to the deception. You don't need to work. Just a little play is fine. Throughout all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, the opposite of, the enemy of work and of labor is idleness, laziness, slothfulness, and it is always condemned as sin. And you know it. You know it because you don't have any respect for the lazy people in your life. Proverbs 24, 30 to 34 makes this very obvious observation. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. 
I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. I know that sometimes when these things are said and we read these from the text, we know it, we know it. You felt that feeling before. Because lack of productivity, a spurning of work, guts a person. It is bad for your soul. It robs you of joy. Yet so often, we make our decisions today like a stream of water. We merely flow downhill on the path of least resistance. Whatever is the least amount of work. Guys, this can invade our lives so much so that we abdicate our responsibility to shepherd our children, which is hard. To cultivate our marriage, which will be hard. You have those days, don't you? At the end of the day, you're just exhausted and you feel like you didn't catch up from the day before and you're just trying to do the good things. Uh, ladies, you're trying to take care of your kids and your household. Men, you're trying to provide for the family. You're trying to do a few other extra things you think would be honoring to the Lord and you just have nothing left in you. Why? Because it's going to be hard. It's labor. The sun is beating down on you. Every day you get older and older, it gets harder to do that labor, not easier. And brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded sometime that we were made to work. And we feel the sting of it. We ought not go, are we made for the sting? No, we're made for the labor. And now the land wars against us because of our sin. But we must set our mind to do the work of God. And when we encounter difficult and challenging labor, we must not be discouraged. Can you imagine what it would be like if all the young men and young women in our Christian churches were the most productive people in society? It would be awesome to watch what happens to the world around us when Christians refused to stop working. God does this redemptive work in our hearts. He saves us not by our works, but by faith. And now we labor and effort towards what he has commanded and get the good joy of fruit. Hard work is good for the soul. Second point, Mankind was made to expand the garden. Mankind was made to expand the garden. This was made, I think, even more evident in chapter 1, which we covered quickly last week. I'll just read for you verse 28. And God blessed them, that's male and female, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth. Wait a second, hold on. He made Adam put him in this garden that he made, a limited size. Whatever size the garden was, it was limited. It wasn't the whole of the earth because he could get kicked out of it. It was in the east. It wasn't north, south, east, and west, up, down. It wasn't everywhere. It was one place. And he was in that one place. And God tells him, fill the earth. You see, that was part of the creation mandate. Your work should include expanding the borders of the garden until this garden fills the earth. Make the rest of the earth look like this. That was his job. In fact, God even goes further to say in Genesis 1.28 to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the garden. No, that moves in on the earth. 
If Adam were to stand in the garden and get up to the borderlands of it and look out and see beasts out into the fields, he should have known it is my job to have authority over them too. And so he was to cultivate, he was to work hard and expand the garden until it filled the earth. That was the point. He was to have that dominion, to take charge, to rule over to take leadership, take possession over. Mankind was granted authority over the earth. Do you know why we're at the top of the food chain? Not just because of our opposable thumbs. We were placed there by God. We were put in that position to cultivate and care for and make flourish all of the earth. You know, I've heard this lie my entire life. All growing up, I've heard this lie from the world, and today it's gotten louder and it's gotten more precise, and you've probably heard this as well. Some radical conservationist even today will say things like this. They think of mankind as a disease, as a plague on the earth. They say that the earth would be better off without us here. That's not true. If you took the earth, removed mankind, the earth would never reach the potential that God wanted for it to have. You get that? Why did God create the garden, and put the man in it. Because the man was to work it, cultivate it, expand it. That's the point. We were made to make the face of the earth as Eden. In fact, he was even told to subdue the earth. You know what that word subdue means? To bring under submission, to subjugate, to enslave. The word subdue means to violate. That's a violent word. So what did God have in mind with this violent word in a sinless landscape? He meant to beat back the thorns, to overcome and quell all resistance to his rule. In gardening, you subdue the earth, you subdue the garden by ripping out the weeds, by pruning back the dead branches, by eliminating the bad bugs. That's what you do in a garden. By forcibly removing everything that is keeping the gardening, the garden from flourishing. That's what mankind was supposed to do. There will be enemies to this. Things that seek to destroy this. It is your job to beat those back. Gardening is warfare. It is you versus the weeds. And we were designed to work the land in such a way that we leave it in a better state and how we received it. In fact, the way you might view a landscape or a garden might be similar to what you observe the Bible talking about our heart, our soul, our lives, once the Spirit of God is working in us. Our cultivation of the earth should mirror what the Lord is doing in the heart of a believer. In other words, it looks like this. And if you're not a believer, you need, you need to be spun up to what I mean by this. Every person on this earth is a sinner. We followed what Adam's going to do in a couple of ch another chapter here. Followed him into sin, and we likewise are sinners. And because we are sinners, we don't deserve the garden. In fact, we deserve death, separation from God. The Bible calls it hell for forever, eternal conscious torment. That's what we deserve, injustice because of our sin against him. But in God's great love, he demonstrated that love by sending us his perfect son who not only lived a perfect life and taught us how we ought to live, but then went to a cross to bear the punishment for the sins that we incurred. That he would take those away from all who would ever believe. And if you repent of your sins, turn in faith to Jesus Christ, you will be saved. 
And just as he died but was raised three days later, you too, after you die, will be raised to new life. And this paradise in eternity will be yours forever in Christ by that belief. If you're not a believer today, that's our charge. Turn from the world, repent of your sins, and turn in faith to Jesus Christ today. But do you know what happens at that point? You don't wake up the following morning and go, man, I'm, this is good, I'm done. No, the Lord begins to expose in your heart the sin, the problems, the issues where the flesh is still leading you around on a leash and where he needs to deal with that. And so what he does for you is he provides the Holy Spirit to expose that sin, that it can be repented of again and be dealt with. And in a very real way, the Spirit of God in our hearts gardens our soul, does not permit one weed to remain, but actively pursues perfection in our hearts that we will not attain in this life. We will die long before we are made perfect, but never will the Spirit of God in our heart walk past a sin and go, not a big deal. All of them must be dealt with. We are to be sanctified in every area of our life. The gospel is to spread through every part of you. All the weeds must go. In fact, you know what the Bible says the Spirit produces in the life of a believer? There's a list of nine of them in Galatians 5. What are they called? Fruit of the Spirit. Because that Spirit gardens. God's Holy Spirit gardens our heart to produce good fruit. In fact, Jesus even says that we can judge whether a prophet is true or false by testing his fruits. By their fruits you shall know them. In a similar way, you and I are to follow the Spirit's example. We are, we are to, in whatever sphere the Lord puts us, to improve upon that sphere. Very, very practically here. Try to get at what I, what I mean by this. Men, work hard at what you do. Be the best laborer in your work. Make yourself indispensable to your company. That if anything ever came about, that made them think, well, he's a Christian, let's get rid of him. No, 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 he's our top performer. Why would you do everything that man touches? He puts all of his heart into, as though he's working for God instead of man or something. We can't afford to fire that guy. In fact, we should probably hire more Christians. Build and make better. Build stronger bridges, taller buildings. I'm not, I'm not I actually think this is kingdom building stuff. And I know there's a difference between material... Only, only material and only spiritual. I'm not trying to, to, to conflate all the categories. I'm saying that as mankind, we are to work and expand and everything we, should, we touch, we should want it to flourish. How did God show his blessing on a nation in the Old Testament? And building walls and fortresses and buildings and temples and castles and their ability to make good out of what was once wilderness. Brothers, enhance your house. Mow your lawn. Clean up the messes. Do those, literally do those things. Make better whatever you've been given. What happens when you see a man's house and it fall into shambles and bits? You lose respect. Why? Because we're made to improve upon our situation. That's why. Women, do likewise. Your realm chiefly in the Bible is the household, the home. 
Make it flourish. Like the Proverbs 31 woman, clothe your children in scarlet. Decorate the house. Literally, I've talked to husbands and wives about this. Decorate your home. Take the blank canvas and make it beautiful. Cultivate that. This is your garden. And in so doing, you are teaching your little kingdom builders in your home how to take what you've been given and expanding on it, making it bigger, making it more beautiful. Brothers, do not undercut your women on this. Brothers, fund your wife's cultivating of the household. Seriously, give her a budget. You figured out a wise amount, okay, amongst you and your brothers and sisters. You can try to help think through that together. But don't say, that's just a house. Who cares? What are you talking about? This is the training ground for the next generation. Make it look like it. It is wonderful when you walk into a home and you see how, how it used to just be blank walls and, and nothing on the floor and, and, and somebody has made it into a home. They put drapes on the walls and, and they've updated the carpet and they've, they've put effort into the household. It's a glorious and a good thing. You should let your kids join in this too. Let them draw their little things and put them on the walls. Let them pick the paint colors for their room. Let them organize their closet. It's wonderful to teach that cultivating in the household. Those things do matter. And in fact, when you go, this is interesting, in our, in our architecture, when you go to the most godless of nations, do you know what you find? Brute utilitarianism. Nothing, concrete slabs, stark gray, no color. Th- think about Nazis. Think about, think about uh, the, the, the Soviet era. Uh, Russia, when more godless nations came to power, what did they do? They killed all the color. They killed all the fluff. They killed all the beauty. Why? Because they're of their father, the devil who hates beauty. The garden was made with all of the trees that were good for the sight, pleasant to the eye. We should care about such things. And I I think that sometimes we need to be reminded it is good and wonderful for us to cultivate those things. I'm going too long on this. Let your wives decorate your household, husbands, please. Lastly, I think you might notice there's a problem here. Because so far in all of humanity, there's only two people. Really one in the text. We know a second's quick to come. How in the world are these two going to expand the garden to fill the entirety of the planet? And the answer is quite obvious. Third point, mankind was commanded to multiply. Multiply. What was the first command given to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. First command. The very first thing they were told to do. The task of gardening the whole earth was bigger than Adam and Eve could have managed, could have managed alone. They would need more laborers. I want you to think about this. The Lord has blessed us to have many wonderful reasons to have kids. There's joy in it. They take care of you when you're older. Uh, there, there, there's something about bringing kids in for companionship and... and but that is not the chief reason we are to multiply, to fulfill some deficit in us. Multiplying is chiefly about fulfilling the task that God has given us. Men and women need each other to accomplish this task. It's biologically obvious, or should be. It is not possible for man to do this alone, nor woman. We are mutually dependent upon one another by God's design. Listen, sometimes you wonder why a verse that seems so obvious is put in the Bible. Who would ever reject that idea? And then a lie comes about. You go, wow, thank you, Lord, you put that verse in there. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, 11 through 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. 
course we know this to be true. And if God did not require the multiplication of humanity, he could have provided Adam with another Adam. This is what is at the root of our enemy's war on gender. Homosexuality, transgenderism, etc. It is inherently unfruitful. Even extreme feminism, unfruitful. It does not produce children. It is a direct attack on the creation mandate. Things from abortion to earth-first climate alarmism, all of these are related. And why? Because they're all lies coming from the same mouth, the mouth of our enemy. And they're like ballistic missiles being launched at this creation mandate, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Christian women, simply said, should be encouraged to have children, become mothers, make babies. Christian men, encouraged, make some babies. Some might ask, how many? How many does the Bible say? Well, the Bible doesn't specify. We see godly women who have, uh, have six. We have godly women who have four. Some in the Bible have two. Some godly women have one. Some godly women have none because the Lord closed the womb. But I think the summary is simple. I think more Christians should have more babies. There it is. In fact, the command is to multiply, not add. So that's at least four. Good start, right? <laughs> Seriously. Um, but brace, your, brace yourselves for this. The world hates this command with such fury that they are doing unspeakable evils in order to stop it from happening. Margaret Sanger was the founder of Planned Parenthood. Did you know, she had kind of a personal slogan. She wrote a memoir on this once. A personal slogan. It was, no gods, no masters. That fits. In a video interview in 1957, she was asked a question straight up by the interviewer that when I watched it, I got like chills on my spine. It said this. The interviewer asked, do you believe there is such a thing as sin? Margaret Sanger replied, I think the greatest sin in the world is bringing children into the world. Don't tell me the world doesn't hate children and fruitfulness. She is the high priestess of feminism. She is living proof that the world hates God's plan for the family. And why attack the family? I mean, seriously, think of, think of these institutions made by God. We have the civil sphere, millions, tens of hundreds of millions of people, on occasion billions of people. Uh, what, about, what about the church sphere? There's all these believers worshiping together. There's hundreds of them together, thousands of them that gather together. The household's just me and my minivan. Why, why, why aim at that? Is that a worthy target? Yeah. Because godly families that work hard, expand, and multiply are the greatest threat to the worldly agenda. Remember the Israelites in Egypt? Remember what they were doing? What were the Israelites doing before they were enslaved? Working hard, expanding their land, and multiplying. And so what did Pharaoh do when he saw they were getting too big and strong? And What did he do? He made them slaves. That's the first step. Make them slaves. Work them harder, and that'll, 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 that'll hurt them. It'll stop the expansion and the multiplying. And what did they find out? The opposite came true. The harder they worked them, 
The greater they expanded, the greater they multiplied. And so what did Pharaoh do when he saw this? He killed their babies. Fruitfulness is so important. So what do you do if you don't have children or can't have children? The Lord who opens and closes the womb. First, press back against the lie. If there's a reason you aren't having kids because of what the world is saying, shut that part down to make sure, okay? But if there are other reasons, luckily, bearing children is not the only way to fill the earth in the new covenant. We fill the earth with disciples of Jesus. We make disciples of all nations. So in other words, if children are not in the cards for you, double down on the Great Commission. Don't go, it's so nice to not have kids. We can travel. Well, you're fine. Go travel. But do you know what you should do when you're traveling? Make disciples. Seriously, there's no good godly reason to not pursue children in the Bible apart from leveraging your energies and efforts for greatest kingdom impact and not selfish or worldly gains. But however you cut it, we are not permitted by God to have nothing to do with multiplying. We're not permitted by God to do that. Never underestimate the magnitude, the cosmic weightiness of building up your family. Did you observe in these last few years when the, 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 the ideologues of the world hit the street to march and riot and loot and kill and burn, literally in all of those, and they were out there for the most absurd, illogical, and godless ideologies, right? And you, uh, did you see that and think like I thought, where are these people coming from? How many people believe these lies? It's like coming out of the woodwork. They're like, men aren't men. And they run out. You're like, what, what are you talking about? How, like, why not a better lie to follow? If you saw that like I saw that, and then wondered like, oh my goodness, they keep coming. And there's more of them and more of them and more of them. And in every sphere you look at, all the influences are saying this is good. This is right. Even, even leaders in certain churches are saying that is good and right and godly. And they're using verses of the Bible to say that kind of stuff. And going, oh my goodness, do we have any power to correct this at all? Yes, go home and care for your family. When they hit the streets, head to your house and wrestle your kids and feed them a good meal and make sure they're clothed and bathed and put them tucked into their beds in a well-decorated room where you open the Bible and teach them what is true and then wait You and I taking care of our households is critical. It has eternal value. This is kingdom building. So, so often it's easy to kind of get distracted by uh, the glory of the battlefield. And so we have in our minds sometimes, I know I have had to fight this, where the big wins for the kingdom are households good enough, go build the kingdom out into the world, right? But the playing with your kids and the teaching them truth and, and the shepherding of your wife's soul and the, the caring for your husband's needs, that is building the kingdom. You don't pause on being a Christian disciple maker in order to put food on the table. No, that is how we win the war. 
John Calvin wrote this about Genesis chapter 2. He said, Nothing is more contrary to the order of nature than to consume life in eating, drinking, and sleeping, while in the meantime we propose nothing to ourselves to do. So being lazy, uh, not finding any meaning in doing that. We possess the things which God has committed to our hands that we should take care of that that remains. Let him who possesses a field so partake of its yearly fruits that he may not suffer the ground to be injured by his negligence. But let him endeavor to hand it down to posterity as he received it, or even better, cultivated. I totally agree with that line. Work and expand and multiply. So what you have to pass to your children is better, more developed, further cultivated, more fruitful than what you received. There is a truly, truly terrible idea that has invaded the minds of some Christians in our culture. We've been sold this lie in recent generations in such a way we have bought this, we have swallowed it hook, line, sinker, boat, fisherman, pole, everything. The idea that we ought not pass anything good onto our children lest they become spoiled or entitled and idle. Have you ever heard like a millionaire saying, like, I'm not going to give my kids anything. I've wrote them out of my will. So they have to learn to bring them up by the bootstraps like I did. That's a terrible idea. That is a godless idea. And you cannot find one line of that in the Word of God. Hey, Christians, you ought to expect your kids to be so entitled, so spoiled, that they would only destroy whatever you gave them. That's a terrible plan. Thank God that our forebears didn't think this way. Can you imagine if the pilgrims and the pioneers thought like this? Consider when the pilgrims came to America to establish colonies here. The, the work and the sweat, they died to make a land worth living on. They broke their backs working and cultivating their land. They, they, they felled trees. They cleared forests and fields. They tilled soil. They built homes in a civilization. And do you remember, you can read this in history books, as one generation reached its end, how then they went back and burned it all down so their kids started with nothing? The folly of it. What in the world? That's a lie of the enemy to make us hit the reset button with every generation. Please tell me you know all the things you have today will end up in somebody's hand when you die. Our godless government, unbelieving neighbors, or the faithful? Who do you want to fund? children of those pilgrims and the Christians who came before us inherited a land further established than what they had received because they had a vision that was greater than themselves. And how did they do that without just producing the entitled, lazy, greedy little brats that would burn down everything their predecessors gave them? Because they, they made sure their children joined them in the labor, joined them in the work. You don't burn down what you built with that. Bring them with you in the building. Hand them the paintbrush. It'll be way messier and worth it. It is essential that we not only raise children, but that we train our children to join us in our kingdom building efforts. Give your children jobs to do. Demand that they contribute and not merely consume. We must think like this for the next generation and teach them to leave something better for their kids than we left 
for them. If you could, if you had four kids and you could buy a house and a farm and a car and, a, and assign a job for all four of them and to gift that to them as they're on their start in life, why wouldn't you? Why would you not? If, if believers did that in America in two generations, we would own three quarters of the land on this, on this nation. They belong to believers. But we bought the lie. Brothers and sisters, this is just a start for us. My hope in aiding you in the whole conversation, I hope to stir up for some of these things we're talking about. Uh, I put some questions, group kind of discussion questions you can do in your household. Uh, you can do just, just with your home, your family, around a dinner table or in the car maybe. Um, you can do it with a small group or a discipleship group or any gathering you have. Just a husband and wife out on a date night if you want. I put seven questions for this week and I'll try to give about that many uh, in upcoming weeks. You can just find those discussion questions on the app. It's the first thing you can click on there. And it's just, that's all it is, is a list of seven questions just to try to stir up some of these, these things by way of reminder and to stir up some discussion that might be helpful for you. But our job is to work hard, to expand what the Lord has given us, and to multiply the workforce for the next generation. And it's upon this foundation we're going to continue to build as we get into next week in the distinction of gender roles that complement one another in a marriage. Let's pray. Father, we love and praise you. Thank you for your word. Please help us to ferociously compete with the lies, to embrace what is true, to mine out what is true, to know it and apply it in our lives, that you would be pleased and that we would get on your plan for building up this world, this kingdom, until your son returns. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.